Lord, we ask for an anointing of your spirit that you would fill us, that you would guide us as we uh, dive into your word. God, that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding, give us the spirit of, of wisdom and revelation. Lord, that the things that we hear would uh, enter our hearts and change us from the inside out. God, and as we look at this text specifically, we would be reminded of your grace and your kindness toward us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Second Samuel, um, to kind of recap, you remember David, he established the kingdom in Jerusalem. He brought the Ark of the Covenant uh, to back to the tabernacle, which at that point was in Jerusalem. So the kingdom is growing. The Lord is blessing it. Then in Second Samuel chapter 7, David's like, what can I do for the Lord? Like the Lord is blessing me so much. What can I do for him? I want to build him a house. Well, the Lord wouldn't allow him to build him a house or a temple if you will, because David had too much blood on his hands. And God says, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And specifically, he was talking about the dynasty that he would establish through David's lineage, ultimately being fulfilled through Jesus, Messiah. And we discussed somewhat thoroughly the Davidic covenant there in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which brought us to 2 Samuel chapter 8. And we see the favor of God continue to be bestowed on David's life. And in this text specifically, he's conquering a lot of the surrounding nations uh, around Israel. Some of those who have taken land from the Israelites. What we see David, what he was attempting to do uh, was uh, recapture the promised land. Um, specifically that land that was promised to Abraham. And we see some of the uh, boundaries that were set up by God in Genesis chapter 15. So that's what David's trying to accomplish. He's trying to fulfill his responsibility and the promise that was made to Abraham, seeing that he is the leader and the king of Israel. And he was extremely successful. He truly was a conquering king. And we looked at how David really gives us a picture of Jesus and his second coming and how he Two is the conquering king, if you will. Now, in Second Samuel chapter 9, well, really the next two chapters, uh, we're going to look at this kind of contrasting thing that's going on. See, David, he's going to remember the covenant that he made with Jonathan, which we'll get into later. And he's going to seek for one of the descendants of Jonathan so that he can bestow kindness to him so that he can fulfill that covenant that he made to his friend. And we're going to see Mephibosheth, uh, that's Jonathan's son. He's going to receive the kindness of David. On the other side, in 2 Samuel chapter 10, and we'll talk about this uh, a little bit next week, we're going to see the king of Ammon reject the kindness of David. So we see the kindness of the king bestowed. One person accepts the king's kindness. The other one later on next week, we'll look at how he rejected the king's kindness. As I mentioned specifically in chapter 9, David is going to extend this kindness to Mephibosheth, um, Jonathan's son, uh, and, and Mephibosheth is going to actually receive this kindness or accept the kindness of the king, which is the title of this, te this teaching. It's accepting the king's kindness, accepting the king's kindness. We see David as a type of Christ 
this text really gives us a picture of the grace and kindness that the Lord Jesus, King Jesus, extends to us. And we'll compare David with Jesus in this text, and we'll also compare ourselves with Mephibosheth as we purpose to accept or receive the kindness of the king. This is not just an initial thing, right, where we receive the grace of God, we accept Jesus. Uh, the Lord continues to bestow grace and kindness uh, to us uh, time and time again throughout our lives. And sometimes we have, we have a struggle with receiving grace, with receiving kindness. We think we need to earn the love of God or earn the kindness and grace of God. But by definition, grace is unearned, unmerited favor from God. And sometimes we just got to receive it. We just got to accept the fact that though we are sinners and though we're not worthy to be in fellowship with God, we got to accept the fact that he loves us anyways. He died for us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of of our fallen state. And that's when he decided to be kind to us. It's not just in a moment that we receive or accept the kindness of the king. It's on a daily basis. So let's look at it. Second Samuel chapter nine, verse one. Now, David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So David Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, remember, he tried to do something nice for God, right? He wanted to do something good for God because God was blessing him. Now we see in 2 Samuel chapter 9, he's trying to do something good for someone else. We see here the picture of the two commandments, the greatest commandments that Jesus gave us. It's about loving God and loving others. Jesus made it very simple. What are the greatest commandments? A lawyer asked him, Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Second Samuel chapter 7, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We sometimes overcomplicate our faith, but if we can just do these things, Paul will tell us later that is sufficient. So in this text specifically, David is looking for someone a descendant of Jonathan, to bestow this kindness. Well, I mentioned the covenant that David made back with Jonathan uh, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Let's take a look at it so we can be reminded of why David wants to do this specifically. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, one of the times that uh, David was fleeing from Jonathan, Saul couldn't find him. Sorry, David was fleeing from Saul. Um, Saul couldn't find David, but Jonathan was able to. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, uh, verse 14. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off Every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. 
Jonathan recognized God's favor on David's life and he said, hey, uh, will you please promise me that even if I'm gone and the Lord wipes out all your enemies, that you'll continue to be kind to my household, specifically his children. So David says, yes, I'll make that covenant with you because we know David and Jonathan were the closest of friends. So David, he makes this promise and now many years later, um, he's probably been ruling over Israel. Israel, some say about 15 years at this point, he decides to fulfill this promise. We don't know what reminded David of the promise that he made back with Jonathan. Maybe he, uh, for the first time, had uh, a little time to chill after he conquered all those surrounding nations in 2 Samuel chapter 8. Regardless, we see David is a man that wants to keep his word. And that's exactly what the king does. The king keeps his covenants. The king keeps his covenants. I'm not talking about King David. I'm talking about King Jesus. God keeps his covenants with us. If he says he's going to do something, he will absolutely do it. And he displays grace and kindness to us because we've entered into a covenant with him. That covenant, yeah, it's the new covenant that we're able to be a part of because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. With that covenant, the Lord bestows kindness to us because he is a God that keeps his word. Now, if the king is a king that keeps his word and we're called to imitate King Jesus, then we too should be people that keep our word, right? The Bible says, Jesus says it himself, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Even if it's difficult, even if it's hard to keep your promise, even if it's next to um impossible even if it's culturally unacceptable says keep your promise if you say you're going to do something then do it see david he's going to fulfill this promise even though it was culturally culturally unacceptable i'll get into this a little bit more later but if a person came into power the king came into power they were culturally uh typically what they would do is wipe out the family members the men specifically of that previous dynasty or that previous kingship but david he's going to go against culture because he made a promise. And David isn't just going to do this because he feels like fulfilling his promise. He's going to fulfill his promise because he made a promise and he knows that the Lord is God. He takes covenants, he takes promises very seriously. Whether we make a promise to another individual or we make a promise to him, he expects us to keep those promises. If we say we're going to do something, we ought to do it. That's what covenants are all about in the Bible. And that's how we should perceive covenants in our life. Whether it's a marriage covenant, I'm committing to, to this, uh, to, to, to entering into this, um, everlasting relationship, at least with our time on earth, with this specific individual, whether it's a covenant I make with a friend, whether it's a covenant that I make with an employee or a boss, you name it. It doesn't matter whether we feel or don't feel like keeping the covenant or all of a sudden the covenant is 
inconvenient. Okay, now this promise is a little inconvenient. It was different when I made it, but now, you know, I don't really want to keep the promise anymore. It doesn't matter how we feel. Keeping our promises cannot be contingent upon how we feel about the promises later on in life. We say we're going to do something. The Lord, he expects us to do it. We see an extreme case of this in the book of Judges. Jephthah, if you remember, he said, Lord, if you help me defeat this army, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. Right? If you remember the story, what was the first? Lord gave him favor, gave him victory over the army. He comes back home. The first thing that comes out of his house was what? His daughter, right? His daughter. And he ended up sacrificing his daughter. Not that God wanted him to sacrifice his daughter, but the point is the Lord is very serious about the covenants that we make, whether it be with him or with other individuals. David knows this, so he purposes to keep this covenant that he made with Jonathan so many years before. Verse 2, and there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, at your service. Then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may bestow, whom I may, I may show the kindness of God? See, Mephibosheth, he was hiding from David, right? Because the cultural norm was to, to, to kill all those who were from the previous reign. But David, he's not looking for Jonathan's son to hurt him. He's looking for him because he wants to help him. He wants to bless him. Again, he wants to keep that covenant of kindness that he made to Jonathan. Mephibosheth, he's hiding from the king because he doesn't understand the heart of the king. He he doesn't understand the kindness of the king. He doesn't understand the grace of the king. So many people hide from God for the same reason. They assume that God is this vengeful, wrath-filled, judgmental dictator. That he just wants to get a hold of me so that he can punish me when I do wrong. So that he can just tell me what to do all the time. But that's not who the Lord is. The Lord wants to get a hold of us. He wants us to follow him so that we can experience all that he has for us in this life. So that we can experience the love of God and the abundance of life that he desires from us. But so many people hide. They just hide away from God. I, I, I don't know who he is and I'm kind of afraid of what I hear. So I'm just going to distance myself from God as far as I possibly can. This is the attitude that Mephibosheth has. Now this king, sorry, Ziba, this servant, he says, look at the end of verse three. And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. Now, it's not like Ziba is ratting, <laughs> ratting Jonathan out, right? He's supposed to protect him. Ziba like, likely realized that David wanted to bestow something good on Mephibosheth. We see the first time Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, is mentioned is in 2 Samuel chapter 4. We went through this several weeks ago. Verse 4, we see how he became lame. In Second Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he, uh, that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. 
So we see that this was during the time. This all happened because of fear. It all happened because of fear. Saul died. Who's going to be the next king? So they feel like they need to hide this young boy, one of the last descendants of Saul. So the uh, his uh, caretaker starts running with him. He's five years old. She she drops him. She trips. She drops him. Probably uh, injured his spine so he could no longer use his legs. We see... That the last descendant from Jonathan is weak and vulnerable. And in his weakness, the Lord is going to bestow kindness on him. This is point number one. The king is kind to the weak. The king is kind to the weak. Just as David was searching for someone to extend kindness to, so too does God. He searches this whole entire world. Yeah, he's searching for the faithful, but he's also searching for the vulnerable. He's searching for the weak. Why? Because he wants to bestow kindness to them. He wants to bestow grace. God is attracted to the weak. He truly is attracted to the weak. Not just the physically weak, but more importantly, the spiritually weak. In fact, the Bible Bible says that's who he chooses. He chooses the weak. Let me show you. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 27. Uh, 26. Um, 1 Corinthians 1. 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of this of the world to put to shame the wise and god has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised god has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence god chooses us not because we're strong not because we have all these gifts or abilities or we have so much to offer the lord no it's the exact opposite it's because we're foolish it's because we're weak it's because we admit that we're vulnerable that's why jesus says in matthew chapter 5 blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of god that poor in spirit what does that mean it means i have poverty poverty of spirit or i'm lacking something internally i recognize i can't do this on my own i'm missing something there's a void in my heart and i need something or more accurately someone to fill that void and jesus comes he said i'm gonna make you rich in spirit because he comes he lives inside of us see mephibosheth He's weak. Because he's weak, among other reasons, the Lord is going to bestow kindness to him. Sorry, David is. Picture of the Lord bestowing kindness to us. The problem comes when people pretend to be stronger than they actually are. The Lord says through Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall contrary to our culture which says hey you need to just suck it up you just need to fight through this you just need a man up right you need a man up bible says it's okay to be weak in fact he told paul my strength is made perfect in your weakness perfect admitting our weakness is the only way that we can be strong mephibosheth he has a weakness and this weakness is going to work to his advantage. Let's look what happened. Second Samuel chapter nine. 
Second Samuel chapter nine, verse four. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Matur, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Matur, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. So Mephibosheth, though he was technically a prince, he's staying at some other guy's house. He's not staying at his own place. Why? Because he fled in fear so many years ago. And this all happened because of his father and the disconnect that Saul had with David. And Saul was constantly going after David. And Saul was an enemy of David. Common sense would say because David and Saul are enemies, David would wipe out his entire family as soon as he got the chance. We see Mephibosheth. He's separated from the kingdom of David because something, because of something that his ancestor did, because of something that Saul did. See, so we're separated from God because of the wickedness of our ancestor, Adam. Okay, that's what separates us from the kingdom of God. Uh, our personal sin, yes, but also the inherited sin that we gain from Adam. We're born into a fallen state. Mephibosheth is separated from King David. Because of his grandfather, King Saul. It also says that they're in this place called Lodabar. Lodabar, it means without pasture. Okay, without pasture. This is, uh, this is not the best place to live. Okay, not a lot of green around here. This is a picture of our state apart from Christ. Without the king of kings and lord of lords, without the good shepherd, we're in a place without green pastures. Why? Because it's the Lord that leads us to green pastures and still waters. Apart from him, we're in a place of dry desolation, the wilderness, if you will. When we're reconciled back to the king, to the good shepherd, he leads us to green pastures and still waters. Second Samuel chapter nine, verse five. Then King's da- then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Mature, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Verse six. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said to Mephibosheth and he answered, here is your servant. I want to break this down for a second. We see Mephibosheth, he responds to the king in utter humility. And because of this response, among other things, the Lord, sorry, David is going to bestow kindness to him. Second point, the king is kind to the humble. The king is kind to the humble. Jesus says it like this, speaking of the scribes and Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, he says, he who humbles himself will be exalted and he who exalts himself will be humbled. The Lord, he's not just searching for the weak, he's searching for the humble. In fact, this is so important to the Lord. We see James say, and and this is in several passages in the Bible, in James chapter 4, verse 6, that God resists the proud, but gives grace to 
to the humble. When we walk in pride, we're literally resisting God's kindness. We're resisting God's grace. Pride literally pushes grace away. I'm pushing away grace when I'm walking in pride. I'm resisting God. He's resisting me and I'm not experiencing the abundance of grace and kindness that I could. If we want to experience all the grace and kindness that the Lord has for us, then we got to humble ourselves. we got to surrender. As we see Mephibosheth, he falls down. He prostrates himself. Prostrates himself. That's the word for worship. He bowed down as an act of worship. Not that David was God, but he was in complete submission, utter humility. And we see when people do this with the Lord, the Lord bestows kindness. Let me show you. It's Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And a lep- and behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Save my idea, he prostrated himself before the Lord, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Because of that humility, because of that act of worship, the Lord ended up healing him. I wonder how many issues that we have, how many trials we go through, how many struggles that we have because of our pride. Because we won't simply humble ourselves and worship the Lord with that recognition that we need him so desperately. Mephibosheth, he realized, I'm completely in David's hands. Okay, whatever he wants to do to me, he can. So I'm going to submit, I'm going to humble myself in hopes that he decides to bestow kindness. And of course, that's what David is going to do. It also says this in 2 Samuel. Chapter 9, look at how Mephibosheth responds. Not only does he fall down and prostrate himself, he said he answered, here is your servant. Third point, the king is kind to his servants. The king is kind to his servants. The reality of our Christian walk is if we're claiming to be Christians then the assumption is that we're serving the Lord with our entire lives. Those two things are compatible. If I'm saying I believe in Jesus, part of that belief is that He is Lord, or in other words, He is my master, which puts me in the position of servant, or bond servant, or even slave to Christ. These are the words that are used as they describe our relationship with the Lord. But sometimes people don't see it this way. I'm studying world religions right now, and they have this term called folk, folk religion, and established religion. Folk religion is basically uh, the religion that's formed through the culture, but isn't necessarily true according to their written scriptures, right? So it would be like this. Uh, folk religion, let's just play it, play it out in America. Uh, folk Christianity, okay, in America is... Um, I'm a really good Christian if I come to church on Sundays, okay? And if I come to church on Sundays, I can basically do whatever I want throughout the rest of the week. Um, I'm getting by if I go to church on Christmas and Easter, okay? Uh, generosity looks like me giving the change that's in my pocket or that $1 that I have left over. Um, we look at some of the cultures uh, in our Christian, uh, in our, or, or sorry, some, uh, we look at some of the practices in our culture in America of what Christianity is, and it, and 
A lot of it's not biblical. It doesn't line up with the scripture. That's folk religion. Established religion would be, okay, I have a thorough understanding of the word and I'm trying to, and I'm lining up my lifestyle with the word of God because this is really what the religion is. What culture sometimes practices isn't actually, actually the religion. And this isn't just in Christianity. This is in every single faith. Sadly, in our culture, a lot of times this happens. People will say, Lord Jesus, my master, but he's not really their, ma- their master because he's not serving them. He, 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 the individual is not submitting to the Lord our God. Jesus, he says it like this in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, in the parable of the talents, I'm going to kind of read this backwards. Negative example, then we'll get to the positive example. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 24, then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look where you have, there you have what is yours, but the Lord But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited uh, my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So we see this servant, he calls Jesus, if you will, his Lord, but because he doesn't serve him, because he doesn't do anything with the things that the Lord blessed him with, he calls him a, a wicked and faithless servant. Technically, he's not even a legitimate servant because he didn't actually serve the Lord with the means that God gave him to serve with. On the other side of things, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 20, we see a picture of one of these faithful servants. He says in verse 20, so he, he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. This is what faith should look like. This is how faith is described in the Bible. This is Jesus speaking. Yes, we're saved by faith, but, but faith, it, it, it looks like something. When we believe the Lord, he comes into our heart and he gives us a desire to serve him. That desire should grow over time. If I don't have any desire to serve the Lord, I got to ask myself, is he truly my master? Is he truly my Lord? If I'm just serving myself, fulfilling my selfish ambitions, is he actually my master? What am I, what am I doing with the things that the Lord has entrusted to me? Because through this, the parable of the talents, Based on what we do with the things that the Lord has entrusted to us determines what kind of servant we are. Whether we're a faithful servant or whether we're a wicked servant. And he even talks about hell. Okay, this person was called his servant. But he said the, the, the guy that buried the one talent in the ground, he ends up going to hell. He, he called him Lord, but, but he wasn't serving the Lord. He wasn't using what God blessed him with and giving it back. Using the things to glorify God. On the other side, again, we see this faithful servant. The Lord says, 
enter into the joy of your Lord. Enter into the joy of your Lord. This is what it means to be a servant. I'm taking the things that God blesses me with my whole life, everything, materially, physically, spiritually, emotionally, you name it. And, and I'm giving it all to Jesus, all for the glory of God. See, Mephibosheth, he responds to David, not just with humility and an act of worship. He responds as a servant. Here is your servant. He's lame. How much could he really offer David? But it's not about what we have to offer. That's us. We're lame. We don't have anything to offer him. It's just the willingness to say, God, I'll serve you with the little that I have. I have no legs, but I'll serve you as best I can with my hands. Okay, there's always something lacking with each of us. It's not about what we have to offer. It's just about offering our heart, offering our service to the Lord. Second Samuel chapter 9, verse 7. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Look what David says. The first thing he says, do not fear. Don't fear. You got nothing to worry about. Mephibosheth obviously thinks he's like, all right, David might cut my head off right now. He might do something. He's here to kill me, right? That's his assumption. That's why he responds the way that he does. And the king says, don't fear. You don't have anything to worry about. I'm not here to harm you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to invite you to come alongside and be a part of my team, to be a part of my family. See, when we accept the grace of God, when we accept the kindness of God, we have nothing to fear. The Bible says if we're in a relationship with God, the only thing we should fear is, is, is God. And that's it. We have nothing else to fear. And fearing God is really the reverence and respect to recognize that the Lord has a standard. And I want to do my best to live or abide by that standard. Not that I fear that he's going to strike me down uh, with lightning uh, any time I screw up. That's not what the fear of the Lord is. So he encourages them, do not fear. I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. It was for Jonathan's sake that David was showing Mephibosheth kindness. Look at the parallel. It's for Jesus' sake that God shows us kindness. It's on the behalf of another individual that we receive the grace and kindness of God. He also tells him, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. David wants to take Mephibosheth from this um, this land that has no pastures, nothing green around there, this place of desolation, this place of isolation, and he wants to restore to him the land that Saul had. That's a lot of land, fruitful land. I want to take you from this desolate place, and I want to bring you to this fruitful place. He says, I'm going to restore your father or grandfather's land to you. See, when we submit to the king, in humility, in weakness, in servanthood. He purposes to restore us. It's point number four. The king is kind to restore. The king is kind to restore. The Lord wants to restore our lives. But a lot of that is contingent upon how we respond to his grace, how we respond to his kindness. He says this in Joel chapter 2. 
in Joel chapter 2. Verse 25, he says, So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the crawling locusts, the consuming locusts, and the chewing locusts, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. Even though our past might have been difficult. Maybe you've lost a lot. Maybe you've gone through a lot of hardship. Maybe you've made a lot of mistakes. God says, I want to restore all of that. I want to restore all the loss that you had before me. I want to restore that a hundredfold with me. And he promises that. If you make me your master, I'm going to restore those years. Yeah, they're sad. They're sorrowful. There were a lot of bad things that happened, but I I promise with me, you will gain restoration. You'll not only get more or get what you lost, you're going to gain more than you lost. And he also invites him, look at this, in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. He invites, meeting with someone was an intimate thing. It is a very intimate thing. He's inviting him into intimate fellowship with him. David's saying, no, you're going to be a part of my table. Literally, he's inviting him to be a part of the family. I want you to come. I want you to sit at my table. I love this about Mephibosheth. And we'll respond to this in verse 8. Look what he says. We'll get back to it. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? He realized he wasn't worthy to sit at the table with King David. See, when we realize that we're unworthy to sit at the king's table, at the table with the Lord, that fellowship with the Lord, that's when he invites us to sit at his table. Let me show you. It's Matthew chapter 15. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus has this encounter with this Gentile woman, specifically um, this Syrophoenician woman. In Matthew chapter 15, she asks, she asks Jesus to to heal her daughter who was severely demon-possessed. Look what it says in verse 26. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs little offensive, right? And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. This response is absolutely epic. Basically, she's saying, I know I don't deserve a place with you. I know I don't deserve a seat with you. I'm happy with the breadcrumbs. I'm content with the breadcrumbs. And as she realized that she didn't deserve to sit at the table with Jesus, look at what he says in verse 28. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. This is the one person in the Bible that Jesus commends for their faith personally. Okay, He commended um, the centurion servant publicly. But her, he commends specifically for her faith. She recognized that she was unworthy to sit at the table. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to do what you're asking me to do. You can sit at my table. You can have fellowship with me if you will. Second Samuel 
back to chapter 9, verse 8, where you look at that, this response. What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? He's saying, I'm a worthless, insignificant person. Okay, that often called Gentiles dogs. And uh, we looked at that on Sunday, how the Jews looked down upon the unclean, common Gentiles. See, this too is a lesson that Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter 14 about how we should respond to the invitation to sit at his table. We're going to get back here in just a second. Luke chapter 14, verse 8. He says, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him and he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And when you begin with shame to take the lowest place, but when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The point that Jesus is trying to make is, is, is get rid of the pride. Get rid of the entitlement. You don't deserve this lofty position. Identify with the lowly things. And as we identify with lowly things and lowly positions, then we give the Lord the opportunity to exalt us and put us in a greater position. This is exactly how Mephibosheth responds. And the Lord is going to give him a great position in the kingdom of God. Kingdom of David, which is the kingdom of God. Second Samuel chapter nine, verse nine. And the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. David says, not only am I going to restore the land, these guys that have been kind of hiding you, they're going to be your servants. And you're not even going to live on the land. They're just going to work the land so that you have some extra provision in your life. And you're going to come live with me in the kingdom of Israel. See, King David, he provided for Mephibosheth. This is the fifth and final point. The king is kind to provide. The king is kind to provide. We don't deserve the Lord's provision. We don't deserve anything God's given us. Nothing. The shirt that you're wearing, the pants that you're wearing, the shoes, the house, the wife, the husband, the kids. We don't deserve any of that. He does that because of his grace. He does that because of his kindness. And he promises that those who are is, he will provide for them. Let me show you. It's Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul, specifically talking to the church uh, at Philippi and commending them because of their generosity and giving and helping him out. Um, And he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, he says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He says, God will. God shall. That's a promise. God will supply all your needs. 
Notice he said needs there. He didn't say wants. He said God will supply everything that you need. And sometimes we can fall into this place that we don't trust the provision of God and we get anxious and we think, how are we going to make ends meet? How am I going to make this happen? How am I going to move? How am I going to provide for my family? How am I going to provide for myself? But if we're the Lord, you said, I'll promise I'll provide everything you need. Not that might be everything that you set your heart on, but I will provide every single thing that you need. It's easy for us to fall into this state of worry in certain seasons of our life, specifically when it comes to the provision from the Lord. And Jesus speaks against this. Worry is technically a sin. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Quit worrying about it. When I'm worrying about provision. It's saying I'm not trusting the Lord. And that's why it's a sin. God's not going to give me what I need. He can't give me what I need. And I've been in positions in my life where I've had literally next to nothing. The Lord's always come through. Ever since I started following him, he proves time and time again that we have nothing to worry about. We put our faith in him. We submit to him. We seek first the kingdom. He promises, I'm going to provide every single thing that you need. I know what you need more than you know what you need. Not me, the Lord. And he provides everything that we need. So David, he provides for Mephibosheth above and beyond what Mephibosheth actually needed. Second Samuel chapter 9 Verse 11, then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord, the king has commanded his servant, so will your servants do. Ziba doesn't argue with them. He doesn't say, eh, I don't know about this. He just responds, whatever you ask me to do, I'm going to do it. This should always be a response to the king of kings, not asking questions, not delaying, not hesitating, not kicking back. Just simply obeying what he asks us to do. It's Mary in John chapter 2. The first miracle that Jesus performed was contingent upon the obedience of these servants. And she says in John chapter 2, if you remember, there's the water turned into wine. The wedding party ran out of wine, which was a big deal in that culture. You could actually get fined if you ran out of wine at a wedding party. So his mom asks Jesus to do something about it. And look at this response. Look at what, look at what his mom says, Mary, in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever he says to you, that's true for us. Whatever the Lord tells us to do, we're called to do it. Whatever it is, whatever he asks us to do, whether I don't understand, whether I disagree, whether it's difficult, whether it's next to impossible, he said, whatever he tells you to do, simply do it. Have the same response that Ziba did. He, he says again, according to all that my Lord the king has commanded, he commanded a lot. So will your servant do. Second Samuel chapter 9. Verse 12, Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. 
And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both of his feet. See, Mephibosheth, he received the kindness of God. He could have said this, even though he knew he was unworthy, he could have said, no, I'm so unworthy that I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to receive it. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a worthless human being. I don't deserve your grace. And I will not take it. He could have said that. He didn't. Because he received the grace and kindness of God, what happened? He got a place in the kingdom. He, he literally got a place in the kingdom. He didn't even dwell in his own land that David gave back to him. He dwelt with David in the kingdom. And this is exactly what happens when we respond and accept the king's grace and kindness. He reserves for us a place in the kingdom. In fact, he says, you guys will be co-heirs with me. You'll rule and reign with me. I have a great position for you here, but you're only going to get it if you respond and accept my grace and kindness in your life. It says, just as David promised in verse 13, as Mephibosheth dwelled in Jerusalem, he ate continually at the king's table. Now we have to remember something. Mephibosheth was technically, culturally, an enemy of David. He was from the lineage of Saul. Saul and David were enemies. David didn't see it like that. But Saul certainly saw it like that. He constantly went after David. It's a picture of us and our state in this world before we come to Christ. It's Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, verse 9, says this. Sorry, verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were enemies with God, he says, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The Bible teaches if we're just God's creation, uh, we're enemies of God. I heard this. I saw this thing there. It was like a, he was some type of Bible teacher and he was trying to talk about um, how we're all God's children, like God, God's whole creation are, are his children. He was saying like the, the first four commandments, um, all of it's about loving people. The first four commandments have to do all with loving God. The, the, the next six have to do with loving, uh, with loving on people and being kind and respectful to people in various ways. But the Bible teaches that if we're simply God's creation, we're his enemies. We're his enemies. Why? Because we're in a fallen state. We're under the God of this world. It's not until we believe in Jesus Christ and the price that we paid, John chapter 1, that we enter into that family of God. It's through faith that we become a part of his family. And when we respond in faith to the Lord's grace and kindness, he allows us to be a part of that family. He allows us to sit and dine with him forever. And he desires this from every single individual in revelation chapter 3 verse 20 revelation 3 20 jesus says i stand at the door and knock paraphrase he says i, I want to come dine with you i want to come spend time with you I, I want you to experience everything i have for you but you got to open the door. You got to let me in you got to desire to spend this time with me and dine with me there are those that open the door 
that respond to the invitation. And there are those that don't. It's Luke chapter 14. I told you we'd get back there. In Luke chapter 14, this story, verse 16. Then he said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. But they all, with one accord, began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then his master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded. And still there is room. Then the master said to his servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. The great supper, a parallel and picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lord is inviting each and every individual to be a part of this supper. And a lot of people got a lot of junky excuses. I I can't come. I can't spend time. I'm not going to respond to this invitation. He says, hey, if you don't respond now, then then you have responded. By declining this invitation on earth, you've declined it in heaven. But there's also a reality that God doesn't just invite us to this eternal marriage supper feast of the lamb, if you will. The Lord invites us to dine with him on a regular basis, on a daily basis. And on a daily basis, he knocks on our heart. and He says, I want to spend some time with you. I'm inviting you to enter into fellowship with me. And we can make all kinds of excuses. I got my yoke of oxen. Probably none of you have yoke of oxen, but whatever your job is, I have to do this or I have to die. I have to spend time with my wife, which is important, but it's secondary to the time that you spend with the Lord. If we're not loving the Lord rightly, we can't love our significant other rightly. He says, I'm inviting you on a regular basis to enter into this supper with me. I want to sustain you. I want to fill you. I want to empower you and encourage you. You can go throughout your day starving to death or you can have the supper with me and I'll give you everything you need to get through your day and through this life. We have a choice as to whether or not we respond to this invitation. The author of 2 Samuel saw fit to remind us of something too at the very last verse. Look what it says. And he was lame in both his feet. Well, we already know that. a reminder that Mephibosheth had nothing to offer and yet David still took him in because of this covenant because of this kindness see responding to the king's kindness accepting his grace entering into his kingdom and his family doesn't mean that all our weaknesses are going to go away (laughs) it doesn't mean that we still won't be crippled in some capacity We're still going to struggle with weaknesses. We're still going to have weaknesses. 
But there's also the promise that as we recognize our weaknesses, the Lord says, my strength will be made perfect in your weakness. Let's look there finally in 2 Samuel, or sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. As Paul learned this lesson from the Lord, a man that was healing so many, yet he could not heal himself. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We're still going to have weaknesses. But the Lord says, If you have that fellowship with me, I can be your strength. I can help you overcome the weaknesses. I can help you get through the weaknesses. And I recognize, though I have weaknesses, as as God taught Paul, his grace is sufficient for me. His loving kindness is sufficient for me. Fellowship with God is sufficient for me, despite my weaknesses. We see in this text... An amazing picture of the grace and loving kindness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Though we were separated from him because of something our ancestor did, also things we do. Though we were crippled, we were lame, we were weak, we were vulnerable, he pursued relationship with us. It's God that pursues relationship with us. And as we respond that loving kindness as we respond to that grace he says i I want you to enter into my kingdom i want you to dine with me not just forever but today enter into fellowship with me today despite the fact that we have nothing to offer the king he still wants to offer us kindness but the kindness of god it isn't forced it's just that it's offered We have a choice as to whether or not we respond to it or we reject it. When we respond to it on a regular basis, not just a one-time thing, when we get saved, but when we respond to the grace of God, when we respond to the kindness of God, when we enter into those suppers with Him on a regular basis, we get to experience a piece of the fullness of His kingdom here on earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and uh, God, we thank you for your grace in our life. We thank you for your, your kindness. God, you offer us so much, and we have nothing to offer you. Lord, I just pray that we would continue to accept and receive your grace on a daily basis, recognizing that we need it every single day, that we wouldn't forget that, God, and it's your grace that invites us into sweet fellowship with you. Lord, I pray that we would take advantage of that, that we would see that as an avenue of grace, that you want so many things, so many good things for us, God. And sometimes we hide. Sometimes we make excuses. Sometimes we reject those moments of fellowship with you. Lord, I pray 
that you would remind us of how good you are, how kind you are, how gracious you are, and how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.